Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. To the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 282. Thursday, February the 16th, 2023. Halfway through February already, Mark. How are you? Wonderful, Brendan. It's a bit damp where I am and the uh, the soundproof booth that I do my recording in is getting foggy inside because of the humidity, but all good otherwise. <laughs> all the hot air, Mark. All the hot <laughs> air. Um, for our subscribers, listeners, vetgurus.com, Poke around there, look at our previous episodes, all 281 of them, download them. Say hello to us, vetgurus at gmail.com. Visit our Etsy store, etsy.com, and search for vetgurus shop and buy some amazing merchandise. Well, Mark, I had a bit of a win this week. Um, well, it's well, I'm calling it a win. Um, the animal's still alive. That's always a win, isn't it, Mark? But it was a guinea pig that had a retro bulb abscess, Mark. And as you know, they can be quite tricky, these ones. And I took it to surgery, and it was the left-hand side last cheek tooth, Mark. Oh, wow. That was the issue. And um, I'll, I'm... Proud and happy to say that I managed to extract the tooth in its entirety from an intraoral approach. So I was wrapped, absolutely wrapped with it. And as soon as I removed that tooth, um, the pus started oozing out there. The pressure was relieved from it. And then I um, flushed it out, uh, um, the socket there, and um, checked with the had – a, had a, you know, an exo globe there, um, exothalmus going on, um, and I don't think it has vision left in that globe on that side. The owner's not keen on ablate in the eye, so at the moment it's gone home and we're just going to see what happens with the globe. Um, it's I going okay. That, it's eating. That's, def- that's definitely a win. That's definitely a win. And yeah. look, I think the key thing there is that you only have to think about removing the eye ablating the eye if it's painful and most of the time once you've removed the you've been able to remove the infection and the retrobulbar pressure um your guinea pig's going to feel much better yeah it's it's only a couple of days post-op now and it's um getting a bit of supplemental feeding but it's still plugging away but as you and i know extracting guinea pig teeth is uh a little bit problematic, isn't it, Mark? It's... I've always thought of it as a form of torture, Brendan. For me, <laughs> yeah. I'm tortured, not the guinea pig. That's certainly a good way of putting it, Mark. Yes. So there you go. That's my um, my win for the week. And it's always good when you get a bit of a win. Um, we've had a the usual with um, this year. It's been another, even though it's only February, another year of um, old patients becoming old and diseased and organ failure and dying, so a, a, a reasonable number of long-term clients with their pets, not just dogs and cats, but the exotics as well, where we've had some pretty sad times with euthanasia in long-term um, animals that we've seen for since they were youngsters, but I think that's part of the process. And 
it, it's probably the wrong term for it, but in one way it is satisfying to see that you have um, managed to keep those clients for that length of time from when they were youngsters, the patients, to the day you end up calling it quits with them and um, um, going on that journey with the clients, Mark. It is, it's, um, it is hard to find the right word to describe the positive component. There's an obvious negative component Sadness. to the loss. But, um, but, yeah, you should be proud, Brendan, of being involved in that uh, journey, um, making sure the animal has the best and longest quality of life that we can give it. And, um, and yeah, it, and I know your clients, uh, um, they stick with you because of that. So that's something that we should all aspire to. Well, speaking of journeys, Mark, we're going to journey into some news and catch up with a few news stories this week. So we're going to have a bit of a semi-rapid fire because some of these it's tempting to talk for a long time, but we'll try and keep it keep it fairly succinct. Um, and the first one, Mark, I'm going to take it's from ARAV, the Association of Journal of Herpetological Medicine and Surgery. Quite a nifty little um, paper here, Mark. Endoscope-guided marble foreign body removal technique in an inland bearded dragon. And um, we've certainly both had lots of dealings with bearded dragons, and I just found this a very fascinating and well-written case report about a one-year-old female inland bearded dragon, Mark, which swallowed a marble, and they... And that's the thing I like about do, dealing with the exotics. It's a bit like do, doing zoo work as well, Mark. It, it's the, it's trying to think laterally with some of these um, cases that you get and and developing innovative techniques and um, even for individual, you know, once-off procedures like this. So um, basically, and, and we'll link to the article at, in uh, the show notes for this week as usual, Mark. And what they managed to do, Mark, is they retrieved the marble by successful attachment of basically a suction um, technique using a 12-gauge French red rubber catheter and the cut end of the red rubber catheter was fitted onto a um, syringe with a lure lock and the wide end was put in contact with the marble and a bit of negative pressure mark and popped it out. Um, it's it's fantastic um, little thing. It's marvellous, Mark. Oh, marvelous. God. <laughs> what do you um, think it, of this article? I, th- it, I agree with you. It's an excellent article. And, um, and I think, uh, like, there's been many times I have laparoscopically attempted to remove uh, foreign bodies from a variety of reptile and amphibian patients with varying degrees of success. Um, And I must admit, despite having done it many times with many sorts of devices, this arrangement, and, and I am like you, I like the way that veterinary science forces us to MacGyver things. You're the king of MacGyvering. And um, and this this is a, uh, one that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, and, yeah, uh, the unique smooth nature of the marble um, and, uh, uh, and the way that you could apply a good sealed negative pressure to it and connect to it and drag it out, um, yeah, ingenious, uh, and something I'll add to the repertoire—a quiver, a bow in a new arrow in the quiver, as it were. Yes, um, great little article by Littman et al. in ARAV, volume thirty-two, number four, two thousand and twenty-two. What have you got for us, Mark? First news. Uh, my first one's from uh, ARAV as well. It uh, it's a bit of a um, well, one of my. 
uh, pet peeves, I suppose, is um, is uh, blood collection and how fiddly it can be in reptiles. And this particular case uh, talks about a specific example um, of um, cardiac tamponade that occurred subsequent to uh, cardiac puncture, cardiocentesis, in a ball python. And this is my eternal fear. And, and look, I've done exactly the same thing as... Uh, as the veterinarians and veterinary technicians uh, described in this case report, that is, I've tried to draw blood from the uh, tail vein, and in some of our compromised patients, it just doesn't happen. Um, so then I move on to cardiocentesis. Um, and in this case, uh, immediately after the, the um, you know, they, they used uh, ultrasound to identify the heart. They used uh, obviously good technique, um, but immediately the needle was withdrawn. It was obvious that there was um, some cardiomegaly um, and they were unable to get the, the, um, the snake back to life. And at post-mortem, a significant clot was discovered in the pericardial sac. And that's my... Ah, oh, crackies, it's my eternal concern, my, my worry every time I have to go and draw blood is that there's a, a risk of, um, of hemorrhage from the needle stick injury into the pericardial space that leads to tamponade. Have you worried about this stuff, Brendan? Absolutely. I think we've mentioned several times over the last 280 episodes, Mark, our preferred technique for blood collection is always a ventral coccygeal, the tail vein in in snakes, but sometimes you can't get it um, because it doesn't happen or we might have a you know very tiny animal, not that this one was a small animal. I think this one was 1.6 kilos or so. Um, and it's that balance, isn't it, of, of risk versus benefit. You know, how unwell is this animal? Do we need those bloods to help save the life of that animal? And if that is the case, then you may have to attempt cardiac puncture for them. And, you know, they tried to do, they did everything right. You know, as, as far as the approach to it, they anesthetized it before they attempted the, the cardiac puncture mark. They used some, um, it was on isofluorine, but they used alfaxalone IM, I think, um, initially to obviously IM because they couldn't get the vein for the for that initial um, coccygeal um, tap. And uh, it still, you know, ended up having a necropsy um, and finding some, and, and some nice little pictures there, <laughs> necropsy postmortem pictures of it. But yeah, I feel for the mark um, for there this. And I, uh, but I think it is a, a, a really good article to, to mention or discuss in that, you know, just, just the warnings of the, you know, ma making sure that you're always, um, always juggling the benefits and the risks of, of these sorts of procedures with them. And, and one day, the bad thing may happen to you no matter how well you try and avoid that. Now, Brendan, there was one thing, and I love Arrow articles, particularly the case reports, because they often spark me to think about one thing. In this case, the discussion included the concern that during the procedure, as part of their normal procedure, as part of my normal procedure, I would normally apply gentle digital pressure to a uh, cardiocentesis site on the in the logic that a little bit of pressure is going to um, limit the chance of um, of hemorrhage, but uh, the 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 uh, authors were concerned that maybe that uh, enabled a higher pressure within the heart 
to continue to pump blood out into through the little needle stick injury and into the pericardial space. And so um, it would be something that I'd be, you know, a good needle stick uh, in this circumstance might well be best not uh, having digital pressure applied afterwards. That was an interesting point in that. Yes. And and make, and definitely differentiating that from the fact that you usually do need to, uh, hold the heart or, or, or mobilize the, immobilize the heart gently when you're actually collecting the sample. Yes. They're, they're talking about the post, post-collection yes. yep. phase, yes. Um, great point, Mark, great point. My next one's a, a very quick one. Um, just a shout-out that a veterinarian from Ecuador has, been, has taken the helm at the head of the World Small Animal uh, WSAVA, Mark, um, Dr. Alan Van Nierop. Um, a small animal clinician in practice in Ecuador was elected as the WSAVA president. So good honour. She runs a, a small clinic with a, her veterinarian husband, Mark. So um, it's great to have these global organisations that are that we're 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 having a variety of of, of different vets from different countries, Mark, rather than being the typical, um, you know five or six from the US, the UK, Australia, yeah. you know, um, the one Germany, etc. The one good thing about the WSAVA is uh, the wonderful way um, that it um, produces a number of sort of um, uh, standards and guidelines. So yes, there's the global the, guidelines. The, the vaccinations, oh, etc. Yes, They use them all the time. And um, they just point out that the new global guideline for the recognition, assessment and treatment of pain um, has been downloaded more than 20,000 times from the uh, the website uh, of the Journal of Small Animal Practice. Um, so they do. that's one of the things about WSAVA, that they produce those guidelines which help us to standardise a lot of small animal care, which flows over into unusual pets. Yep, excellent. So that's my next article, Mark. What have you got? Oh, mine's, uh, uh, we're leaving um, the veterinary world for um, a quick story. Um, my friend Mickey uh, uh, has written an article for the uh, Sydney Morning Herald. Sydney, oh, one in, in that fleet of newspapers. Um, she's reporting on the rediscovery of um, uh, a beautiful bird in the Mallee, in your home state, in Victoria, Brendan. Um, Mallee birds are generally problematic in that they uh, occur in a place that not many people go to and they're very secretive. Um, but just last year, October 11th, in fact, in Victoria's northwest, um, in the Big Desert Na- National Park, um, they, they came across the calls. There were volunteers uh, using recording devices and they um, came across the call of the very rare white-bellied whitbird. Now there's a small population of this elusive bird in South Australia, but um, this is uh, um, the bird's been considered to be extinct in Victoria for more than 40 years. Um, so uh, I can just imagine that uh, that group of volunteers with their ecologist leader sitting down by the fire in the Mallee, um, and the grins they would have had on their face when they heard the whitbird call. The whitbird's a, a cousin of the eastern whitbird who gets its name because it does this beautiful whip-like crack 
in the moist forests of eastern Australia. Um, but the uh, the white-bellied whitbird doesn't do that sort of a call. It doesn't have a whip crack call. Um, uh, people who listen to it call it a cartwheeling cry. Uh, but um, you'll link to the article and people can listen to it themselves, Brendan. I will. And I expect I'll see an article one day that has your name in it, similar to this one, <laughs> Mark, that um, Mark the Vet has discovered a species that was expect, uh, was thought extinct or um, hasn't been reported for many years. So I'm looking forward to that, Mark. And speaking of that, my next article is about a clam, Mark presumed extinct for 40,000 years. That so, puts 40 years to show <laughs> It's been found alive. I don't think it's been living for that 40,000 years, this particular little clam, um, this individual, but yes. So uh, quite an interesting story, this one. Um, the clam has only ever been reported as a fossil, obviously, um, thought to be extinct 40,000 years ago. And a researcher scouring the tidal pools for sea slugs off the coast of California in 2018, Jeff Goddard, spotted something a bit weird, a white translucent bivalve. They're only tiny, these guys, Mark, 11 millimetres in length. And he didn't want to disrupt it, so he took a picture of it and took it back to the university. And they said, oh, this looks something that <laughs> might, um, might be something we haven't seen before. So they um, worked out that, yes, it is one. It's a... It's a um, it's a specimen. Then they finally caught a, a live specimen in, uh, a year later, 2019, and took it back to the museum and compared it to the fossil records, Mark, and they named the species after Edna Cook, an amateur shell collector. And and its name is, let me scroll back up here, so Matioa Cookai, Mark. Um, so there we go. Um, a species that was thought extinct for 40,000 years has been found alive. And now it's extinct again because they took it out. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hopefully there's a few more there, Mark. And my last story uh, sort of swings, segues from that quite nicely. It's the story of a, uh, a dwarf boa um, that's new to science that was discovered in Ecuador's upper Amazon basin. Um, these, these, ah, the photos in this article um, are just spectacular, Brendan. They're beautiful looking little snakes. They're only, uh, what was it, 27 centimetres long? Yeah, about um, a foot, yep. yeah. Yeah. And, um, and probably the main thing that I took out of this article is that um, is, it's something that we have mentioned a few times, particularly more recently in a podcast, that there's things that are all about us um, that we, um, you know, we don't see, that uh, there's still a whole heap of things to discover. And, and, um, and uh, I know that here in Australia, we just recently had um, a discussion about um, what... Uh, our environment department environment minister could do the the low-hanging fruit that would make a difference to our future and there's a you know a wide range of things but the first thing was just like discover all the things that are here that uh, um, that there's so many undescribed species and what we do know where we do have a, have a species we often don't know where it fits into the ecosystem so these examples of new discoveries are happening around us all the time and they're um, important to encourage and keep going and I hope you are correct I hope that one day my name can be in one of these papers having discovered some new little slug or bug and adding to the 
volume of science that we have to make the world a better place. I'm sure you will, Mark. Um, I'm just hoping it's not a little annoying mosquito or something. <laughs> or a new, a new, new subspecies of cane toad or something. No, I'm sure it'll be something spectacular, Mark. Now, our last news story before we get out of here is one that I think we should discuss together, Mark. Um, what do you think? In fact, you sent this one to me, did didn't send you? It to um, so the title of this paper it was in um, Javma, the, the Journal of the American Vet, Veterinary Medical Association, nineteenth uh, of January two thousand and twenty-three. So published fairly recently, as as we go to air with this podcast. Retrospective assessment of general anaesthesia-related challenges. Morbidity and death in snakes, 130 cases. So a, a series of cases, um, retrospective sort of study. Um, 2000 to 2022, Mark. So do you want to jump into the um, summary of this paper? Well, the the upshot of the paper, the the um, the clinical relevance was that um, general anaesthesia can reliably and safely be undertaken in snakes without severe pre-existing disease. Dull. Um, dull? Dull. We, didn't we already know that, Mark? Well, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> the, this case series started in 2000 and went to 2022, and, and I could have told them that in 2000. <laughs> We're going to save them 22 years of worry and concern. Um, but, yeah, that was that my – look, I understand that – and as we just said, the more information that gets published and the more details that get out there, um, the better the world is, the better, more knowledge, more uh, data, basic quality data. But, um, but oh, geez, I don't know. Um, this sort of paper makes me worried when it's titled Retrospective Assessment of General Anesthesia-Related Challenges, Morbidity and Death. Um, it's sort of, I don't know. It's almost like a bit of clickbait. Make people worry. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't want people to worry. They should anaesthetise snakes when they need to and take all reasonable steps like in other species. But um, do it. I say do it. Yes. Uh, When I saw this paper, I think I mentioned to you, gee, tell us something we don't already know. Um, (laughs) But I suppose being published in... in, um, Javma. It's it's going to reach a lot of small animal vets who are just dealing with dogs and cats and thinking, oh, gee, can you anaesthetise snakes safely? Um, and they didn't realise that, um, as opposed to us who've been dealing with it for, you know, 30, 40-plus years and, <laughs> and having no issues or concerns about anaesthetising the animals previously. Um, so in that that respect, Mark, here, I think it is a, a, um, a useful paper, but... Yeah, I don't. Uh, interestingly, it does. Um, I mean, when you dig down into it a little bit, Mark, um, the results there, um, the the anaesthesia that was used um, was was interesting, um, um, including alfaxalane, butorphanol, hydromorphine um, for pre-med, um, and our isofluorine, alfaxalane, and propofol for induction there, Mark, um, which is. Well, pretty standard, isn't it? Um, there's probably the three things that are used, especially injectable alfaxalane or propofol as the main induction agent for them. Some some people do mask down some snakes just with isofluorine for various reasons. And maintenance with isofluorine, isofluorine was the most popular choice, not un, 
unsurprisingly, and eight were euthanized due to poor prognosis, four failed to recover out of the 139. Um, and all the snakes that failed to recover, Mark, had pre-existing diseases as well. So, yeah. And you so, are correct, Brendan. It is, it is, it is worth drilling down into those uh those factors and and it is unsurprising but worth mentioning that um that uh while they're robust anesthetic candidates uh if they're severely compromised um then bad things can happen um i i, I do i do think that um the theater the um the the javma that that um uh, August Journal spreading that information around more widely is definitely a good thing, and I don't mean to um, uh, denigrate the authors or the the article. It just it just struck me as more, uh, you know, making it sound more of an adventure than it really was. Um, even with the number of sick python uh, snakes they were dealing with, they lost only four um, to anaesthesia. Uh, out of 139 or 140 snakes, that's you know their odds that um, that are pretty good generally. Yep, I agree, Mark. So despite our little chuckles at the start of this, um, yeah, it's 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 good to have that out there. And and I suppose that the, the I, I haven't done a literature search, but there may not have been any previous case studies. Series. Yeah, case yeah, series like yeah. this, so it may be the first one, which is surprising, but it's like common things happen commonly and we often don't report the common things, do we? We assume that everybody knows about them because they are common, but they may not be out there in the literature. So I think with that, Mark, we'll get out of here and we will talk to you all next week. to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time